Go ahead, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Psalm 139 today. Psalm 139. And let me pull up my notes here. History is littered with sin and tragedy, isn't it? You don't have to look too far to look throughout history to realize that uh, human beings have a way of mucking things up. We have a way of bringing injustice with us wherever we go. And our own history in this country, we can pick on every country and look at their uh, iniquities. We could look at their tragedies and their injustices throughout their history, but we can pick on our own country. And one of the great scars of American history is American slavery that was practiced for many, many years in this country as it was picked up from many other nations that practiced slavery at the time as well. Now, two things. I'm a student of history. I love history. And uh, two things kept slavery going many years after the slave trade ended in Europe under the hands of many great Christians, such as William Wilberforce, who fought to end the slave trade in England. Uh, But two things kept it going in America a bit longer than it did in England. And first was the perpetuation of the idea that those who were from certain nations, particularly around Africa, were less than fully human. Now today, when we hear something like that, we get sick to our stomach that anyone at any time could ever think something like that. But that was one of the core ideas that perpetuated the idea that slavery was permissible. And if, if they were less than fully human, then uh, we could treat people from those nations however we wanted to. We could enslave them, we could put them to use, we could kill, we could abuse. This was the same idea that was used by the Nazis towards the Jews during World War II, same principle. This has happened in many different iterations throughout history. The second myth that was uh, oftentimes perpetuated in the American colonies was that because this was a political idea, because this had entered into the political space, right, our country was divided in two. Very clearly, there was the North and there was the South. And they were against each other on this issue, and it was hyper-political. In fact, we would eventually go to a war over it where tens of thousands of lives would be given. So this was as political as an issue got. Because it was political, many churches felt it was not their place to speak into it. Okay, And so many churches just stayed silent. I was reading some history recently. Uh, one of my great heroes, a man named Charles Hodge, he got into a debate during this time with a, I think I'm going to get the name wrong, I th- something Thornton. It was another well-known pastor at the time. And uh, they were debating, and Thornton was saying, look, the church should never speak into political issues. And, and Hodge was looking at him saying, are you seeing the injustice happening around you? Are, are you? are you seeing it? And you think you shouldn't speak into it? And Thornton said, no, it's political. It's not the church's place. And uh, Hodge had this great line. He said this, the church as witness of God is bound to bear her testimony against all sin and error and in favor of all truth and righteousness agreeable to the scriptures. If the laws of the community under which we live with regard to slavery, the slave trade to marriage and divorce and the like are contrary to the word of God, then the church is bound so to teach and so to preach. And my guess is most Christians thinking about that issue back then with with a wholehearted yes and amen say, thank you, Charles Hodge, for setting the record straight. Thank you that there were many faithful pastors and many faithful Christians who were willing to speak up against such an abomination, who were willing to teach what the Bible said, because the Bible was clear. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 
This was a biblical issue. Say what the pastor said, or say what the Bible said, and that would be, by default, stepping into a political space. Now, today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is just as divisive as slavery was back then. And that is the topic of the sanctity of life, particularly the child in the womb. Today, just as slavery was back then, there are two key issues that keep churches and Christians from engaging on this topic. Now, they're not the same topic. They are different. And I don't want to too much draw a comparison between the two. But I want you to see that the same two ideas that kept Christians out of this are perpetuated in the conversation on abortion. And the first is that those in the womb are not fully human. It's the same line. It's the same line. History is on repeat. And the second is that because this has become a political issue that is so divisive, it's better for churches and pastors to just stay out of it. Now, before I go any further, let me just ask you at this point. Do you wish, if you could go back in time, that you could wake up sleepy Christians and put them to work to end the abomination that was the slave trade? Yes. I'm guessing the answer to that is yes. And you would stand with clarity on the word of God and you would pray that God would give you a spirit of boldness to speak to people who did not want to listen to a thing you had to say, what the word of God said. Why? Because lives were at stake. And so you would want to go back. Well, we have a chance to do that today. Today we're going to be speaking about the topic of abortion. Before I dig in too much further, I want to speak to two different groups of people who are in the room joining us today. Now, to some are in the room, uh, you may be a skeptic towards Christianity. You might be here, frankly, because I'm teaching the class afterwards, the case for Christianity, and you came on the arm of a friend, and uh, you can't believe that a Christian pastor in this city is speaking on abortion. And uh, I want to speak to you very clearly right now and just say this. I am so glad you are with us today. Um, and I want to appeal to your conscience for a second and just say, don't you think that the God of the universe who created the world would have a different opinion on morality than current modern culture on a whole lot of issues? Doesn't it just seem, just if, if, even if you're an atheist in the room, don't, doesn't it just seem like God does not bow to whatever the current cultural modernistic trends of morality are, but that he stands apart from it, and that because he's good, he's got clarity on what is right and true? I think you probably say yes to that. Before I was a Christian, I probably would have said, yeah, that makes sense that God does not bow to our current cultural demands. Well, what I want to invite you into is I want you to see what the Bible says is God's clarity on what he has prescribed for true morality about the sanctity of life in the womb. You don't have to agree with us. In fact, I doubt you will agree with us. But if you're in the room and you're a skeptic, I want you to hear the beauty and the power and the clarity with which God speaks. Okay? Now, second, the second group I want to speak to. Whenever I preach on this topic, and it's about once a year, uh, sometimes I skip a year, but it's about once a year. I have a number of women come up to me afterwards who are folks in our church and share with me that they have had abortions. And, uh, and every time that I prepare to give a message like this, my heart is heavy all week knowing that for those who have had abortions in this room right now, Christian or non-Christian, what you are preparing for is a whole heap of shame and guilt over the decisions that you made in your life. And uh, I want to be very tender right now and just pastorally minister to you by saying a few things. First of all, 
you have been the primary person that I have been praying over all week. On top of everything else that's on my heart and my, like I'm, that's weighing on me preparing for this message today, um, it's you. And uh, what I want to say to you is two things. First of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believed in Jesus, that says that all of your sin, all of it, has been nailed to the cross. And Jesus went to the cross for you because of your sin. And not just your sin, but my sin and all of its filth and, and each of our sin, whatever that sin was, and all of its filth. And he nailed it to the cross and he did away with it. He went to the cross underneath the wrath of God in order to forgive you of your sin. He rose from the grave to grant you new life. And when you believe in Jesus, your shame has been put to death in the cross. Okay? Now let me just bless you here. I am going to call sin, sin today. I am not gonna hold back punches from saying what needs to be said. But if that is you in this room, if you are a woman or if you are a man who assisted in this and who brought a woman to get an abortion, I want you to hear that in Christ, there is a release from the shame. It doesn't stop to call sin, sin. It releases from the shame, but then here's what it does. It calls the sinner to step back into a place mobilized by Christ to step into brokenness and minister to others who are experiencing the same thing you went through once. Can I tell you, I have folks come up to me who are, who are thinking about abortion, who have friends that are thinking about abortion, and do you know what they need? They need a woman who has been there, who knows the decision they're going through, to come alongside as a wise counselor to shepherd them. And so if that is you, I want you to know, not only is there freedom in Christ, but there's action for you to be taken. You are so needed in this conversation. Okay, so may I have permission, your permission, to dig into the text today and find out what God's word says on this topic? Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. Let me read it to us. Beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The word of the Lord. Now, in Hebrew poetry, the word inward parts, your eyes saw my inward parts, uh, your, you formed my inward parts, that is the, the seat of the emotions. So whenever you see that word being used in, in the Old Testament, it's the seat of the emotions and the affections. It's that place in the human soul where grief, where feeling, where that, that sense of the inner being is being made. It's where the conscience exists and where spiritual distress can be felt. He's saying, you formed me, God, and when you formed my being, you did it in the womb. That's where that was being formed. That's where you knit me together. All the pieces that make me far more than just an animal or far more than just a substance, all of it that makes me a human, you were forming in the womb, my inward parts. We see that it says that God knit us together. I love that imagery. It's the imagery of what God is doing to a child in the womb, as that thing is growing, as that little baby is growing and all the different pieces are, are forming and coming together to form a little life, 
the scripture says in a kind of a metaphorical sense that it's God, in fact, who is knitting that child together just the same way someone who's putting a quilt together might stitch all the pieces together. And God's orchestrating it, and he's making the pieces grow in just the right way and in the ways that he's ordained. It's him that is bringing it together. We are not just evolutionary accidents, nor are we random chaotic movements of mass and energy. Each person is precious because he's made in the image of God. He's molded by God in the womb. And I love this language. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully because there is a holiness to the unborn child. He has an image of God in it. It's fearful. Don't skip that word. It's fearful because this is a work of the Holy One. This is a work of God Almighty creating something. How is he made? He's made fearfully. And he's made wonderfully. It is a miracle every time we see a pregnant woman. Isn't that amazing? Every time we see a child growing in a woman, we have a handful of pregnant women in this room right now, we say, that is a miracle. That's, in, that's incredible. Think of what God is doing. He's making a new human. He's created a new soul. And it's being formed inside of a mother and the umbilical cord is working. Every time we think of this, we've got a book in my house that goes through the, the phases of development of a child. Every time we think of what God does to bring a child into being is we should sit back and just be brought to a place of worship that God is so creative and incredible. Every time it should strike us that way. It's always a miracle. Verse 16 says, you, formed my, you saw my unformed substance. Interesting term there. The term in the Hebrew for unformed substance is actually the term that we have for embryo, golem. It's literally the child when it's in its first eight weeks in that embryonic form, when it's not physically viewable in the form of a child, when it's still an unformed substance. And what he is saying in those verses, he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. He says, you saw all the days of my life, even those days of my life. That's what the text is saying and communicating. He says, even when I was a golem, even when I was a, an embryo, in those days of my life, you knew those days of my life and you ordained them, God. He calls his life including those moments. Now, from Psalm 139, we have found a foundational passage that is not the only passage, we'll talk about a few more, but a foundational passage for us to have a biblical worldview. And from it we see that God is the miracle-working God who forms a child in a womb, and it is a holy thing, and it is a miraculous thing, and it is a human thing from the point of conception. Now, there are a number of other passages that we can speak into this. I could have picked 20 other passages. In fact, in my own time in the, in the Word this morning, one of the passages I was in was Jeremiah 20. Randomly, I was in Jeremiah 20. And there again, we had another passage Jeremiah speaks of. He, he wishes that he had been killed in the womb. That he had been killed in the womb. And the word kill is only used of a living being. And once again, there's many passages we could speak of. But let's talk about a few of them that are important. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. Old Testament law. God in the Old Testament had a law, a life for a life. Capital punishment. If you murder somebody, if you kill somebody, you will be put to death. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. That was Old Testament law. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 23. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. 
as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm to the child, then you shall pay life for life. So, this is what this means. The Old Testament law was, if you take the life of another human being outside of the womb, your life is forfeited. The Old Testament law was also, if you take the life of another human being inside the womb, your life is forfeited. It's, it's, this is, what I'm trying to show you is the consistency of the scripture. There are churches and there are Christians that don't know what the Bible teaches on this. And I just want to make it really clear for us so that there's no confusion and you can be equipped to live in this world and be mobilized for it. Okay? John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, we've been studying the gospel of Luke. In two weeks when we join back together, we'll pick up right where we left off in our journey through the gospel of Luke. But in Luke chapter 1, Mary, pregnant with Jesus, has gone to visit John the Baptist's mother, who is also pregnant with John the Baptist. So these two pregnant women come to each other. And as soon as Mary comes near Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, the baby inside of her like turns over and leaps in her womb. And listen to what Elizabeth says to Mary. Luke 1:44. Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. What was John the Baptist doing? He wasn't just this blob that was turning. It wasn't just some organ that was moving in the stomach. He was worshiping. He had joy. Humans experience joy. Now, this is interesting. In the Atlantic, of all places, the Atlantic, a very uh, uh, politically liberal uh, uh, magazine wrote an article titled Science is Giving the Pro-Life Movement a Boost. I like a title like that. It reads this. Emma Green writes, the pro-life message has been for the last 40-something years that the fetus is a life, and it is a human life worthy of all the rights the rest of us have, she said. That's been more of an abstract concept until the last decade or so, but, she added, when you're seeing a baby sucking its thumb at 18 weeks, smiling, clapping, it becomes harder to square the idea that that 20-week-old, that unborn baby or fetus is discardable. New science is instilling a sense of awe. Notice how they're fighting for biblical language. We've got this language. Holy, fearfully, wonderfully made. They're, they're trying to find something to say what we already know. Instilling a sense of awe that we never really had before at any point in human history, McGuire said. We didn't know any of this. What's science discovering? Science discovering that the Bible wasn't lying. When it said John the Baptist leapt with joy because he was a human and babies in the womb can experience emotions, science is catching up to what the Bible knew all along, isn't it? Children feel all kinds of emotions. By the way, this is why mothers and fathers will whisper into a womb and talk into the womb and sell it because the, the, the child inside is able to connect with the people outside of it. Science knows this very well. Most importantly, let's speak about the centerpiece of Christianity, the incarnation. Jesus did not incarnate himself as a two-month-old child, nor did he incarnate himself as a 30-year-old man. Jesus incarnated himself as an embryo into the womb of Mary. And for Jesus to experience all of life, the human experience, remember he's fully God and fully man. God humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant, stepping into the brokenness of it all. How does he do it? Where does he begin? He enters into the beginning of the human story, into the womb. We cannot remove 
We cannot remove humanness from the embryo or the fetus because it denies Jesus the majesty and the mystery of the journey he went through into humanity. The Charlotte Lozier it writes this. It says, The conclusion that human life begins at sperm-egg fusion is uncontested, objective, based on the universally accepted scientific method of distinguishing different cell types from each other and on ample scientific evidence. Thousands, yes, thousands of independently peer-reviewed publications. Moreover, it is entirely independent of any specific ethical, moral, political, or religious views of human life or of human embryos. Let me give a summary of the biblical perspective on the life of a child in a womb. All of life, from womb to tomb, has dignity. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God. Why was slavery, the way it was practiced, an abomination? Because every human being is made in the image of God. Because every human being is made with value, worth, dignity, and is due their respect because they're wonderfully and fearfully made. Why are children in the womb worthy of life, worthy of dignity, worthy of respect, worthy of protection, worthy of someone to stand up for them? Because they're made in the image of God. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. Therefore, to take the life of a child in the womb is treated in the scriptures as the exact same thing as taking the life of any other human being outside of the womb. It is a very serious sin. And we need to, as Christians, to be able to call it what it is. It is sin. It is an injustice. And it is wrong. Now, Christians are to hate sin. And Christians are to lead the way in society in standing against injustice happening around them. That is a hallmark of the history of the Christian faith. It is what we have always done. Christians have gotten this wrong. A good example of that is America's history where many Christians were deceived and were not reading their Bibles properly. They didn't know what it said or they were lying and they just wanted to live their own lives and they were proving that they actually weren't Christians. But if you're really a Christian and you're going to go with the word of God, Christians must step into brokenness. They must step into injustice. And by the way, our trailblazer is Christ himself who stepped in for us when we were in our vulnerable place. He stepped between us us and the wrath of God, underneath the, the wrath of God on the cross, so that we would be shielded from the wrath that we had earned. And now he invites us to step into injustice around us, to stand in between the brokenness and function as protectors for the vulnerable around us. That's a Christian's joy, isn't it? Isn't that a Christian's joy to stand for the weak and the vulnerable and the hopeless and the hurting? Isn't that just the the most basic premise of Christian morality is you've been saved by Christ, not to sit on our rears and be lazy, but to, to step up and to stand for something Now, there's a lot of causes, and there's a lot of reasons to stand for life in a lot of different places, and Christians do it well. I'm speaking on one of them today. We've got to stand for life in the womb. Now, I want to to approach this in a few ways right now, and I want to answer the question, why has culture gone the direction that it's gone? Why has culture gone the direction that it's gone? Outside of the church, what you're going to hear is that abortion is not only... um, not only not wrong, but it is actually to be celebrated. 
it is something that is a good. In the old days, it was kind of like a necessary evil that you had to tuck away and just not talk about, but just let it go, it's permissible. Today, it is very clear, this has become a sacrament for secular culture. It is something that is celebrated. When people sign, for example, I was in the room when Governor Pritzker signed his abortion law into effect. I was there with two other Christians and we were praying over the room and we were treated terribly. But we were in the room praying over that moment. When he signed the most liberal abortion law in the country, in this state, into effect, the entire room exploded in celebration. It was almost as we were, just as we were worshiping a little bit ago. That's what it sounded like in that room. Why? Why has it become something to celebrate? Well, I think there's maybe three idols driving that. Let's talk about all three of them. First is the idol of success. As the feminist movement grew in the early 20th century, it became apparent that there was one major obstacle that was keeping women from being as successful as men in the workplace. That was children. Children and getting pregnant would keep a woman from having the type of career that a man could have. And so the common language that was used back then, it was very common language, it was argued, in fact, during the lead up to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, it was argued that for a woman to be equal with a man, she had to be able to be as equally unpregnant as a man at any given time. Let me say it again. For a woman to be equal with a man, she had to be able to be as equally unpregnant as a man at any given time. What a reversal of the natural ways of God. Now, the fool says in his heart there is no God. I think with Christian eyes we can look at this and say this is just foolish. But what is the idol underneath this? What's driving that foolishness? It's the desire for success. It's a desire to be as successful as we can. And what a sad, tragic turn that we would value success in this world so highly that we would be willing to kill to get it. The gospel responds to this. The Bible teaches us in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Friends, you can have all the success in the world down here, but we will all stand before a holy God and give an accounting for our life, every one of us. If we make success our driving value, then others are ultimately there to be used and to be pushed aside in order to drive us to be able to be more successful. And what you discover as you talk to more and more women who have pushed others, not just women, but men and women who have pushed others aside, stepped over other people, what you find is that the higher they reach in success, the more empty they feel, the more shallow they feel, the more hollow they feel. This is just the story. We know this story. Hollywood makes movies about this story because they know it's true as well. But there is a better success to be had. Is not the greatest measure of success in a person's life that they might stand on their judgment day before their God and hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant? Isn't that to be the marker of the success that we're to aim after? That God would be pleased with us. That's success. Whatever else happens in my life, whether I have riches or whether I have poverty, to be pleased with God, to have God be pleased with you, yes, that's what I want in my life. You gotta have a righteous life, a life of following Jesus who grants you his righteousness and then leads you in obeying his law. The second idol that drives this is the idol of independence. There's a value that our culture places on being able to live a life free of burden. A life that can go on vacation whenever you want. A life that can spend your money whenever you want. A life that can go out to eat at any restaurant whenever you want. And what's the number one thing that keeps you from being able to go out to a restaurant? 
to my wife, what, what keeps us from going to any restaurant whenever we want to? It's our kids. It's our kids, our precious three kids. We're not independent. But if, if the idol in your life is independence, I want to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, well, then kids are going to get in your way. And in order to maintain the idol of independence, you have to get rid of the child in order to continue pursuing independence. Now, this is foolishness once again. Romans 6, 20 to 21 says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. This is interesting language. He says, when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regards to righteousness. He says, look, before you knew Jesus, you could do anything you want. You were independent. You could treat people however you wanted to. You could get ahead however you wanted to. You could do whatever you wanted to with your life. What fruit were you getting? Be honest with yourself. If you came to faith in Jesus a little later in life, you know what this passage means. What fruit were you getting from your shallow ways back then? It always led to death. Until you met the living God and he changed you. But Jesus reorients your entire being. We rob ourselves of true freedom when we think that independence is what is best. True freedom is found in depending on Christ as your Lord and Savior. Submitting yourself unto God and having God fill you with a holiness that you were made for. When he stitched you together in, his, in your mother's womb and granted you holiness and, and granted you life and breath. See, we're not made for independence. We're made for submission unto God and then to be a part of a dependent community. In the Bible, children are a rich reward. Isn't that interesting? How, how, contrast, how contrasting is the secular mindset to the Christian mindset on Christian? Psalm 127, three to five. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemy in the gate. That's the Christian mindset. We, we, we value because we love Christ and we see how we're all connected and we see his way of doing things. He reinstates the godly design for the world. What's the third idol? The third idol is very unfortunate, but it's very present, is hypersexuality. Hypersexuality. Abortion makes a pursuit of lust with your whole life very easy because you can have as many abortions as you want. Juan will testify. Many of the women that we get a chance to speak to will tell you that they're not there on their first time. Many will say they're there for many consecutive times in a row. They've done this a number of times. And uh, we live in a culture that has become hypersexualized. I speak into this regularly. I don't think you even need me to speak into it. You are all very aware, well aware of this, just living your life in, in the city of Chicago. Let me read to you a quote. I read this years ago to you, and it's a really important quote. Ernest Becker, who's a secular author, he's writing about uh, what it means to be human and the type of things that we pursue in our life. And he writes this interesting language. He's writing about what it means to be alive but to not believe in God anymore. He said, we still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning. But if we no longer have God, how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that it occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, we now look for in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption. And nothing less. 
Hypersexuality will not fulfill you. In fact, it will cheapen your body and your soul and make you feel as a person not much more than a very cheap prostitute. Because when you are sleeping around with that many people, functionally, that is what you have become. And God has such a better vision for your life. God doesn't want you to have that hollowness in your life of cheapening your body and cheapening your soul. He wants you to experience that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by a holy God who knows your soul and can grant you life everlasting and life here in the present and life of meaning and value where you are fully loved, where God is not going to leave you the moment you do something wrong. See, when you have all these love partners, when you have all these sexual partners and you're, you're living for sex, what you're doing is you're putting yourself in the most vulnerable situation. You're totally intimate with a person, bare before them, in the most intimate place humanity can experience, but there's no commitment, there's no covenant, and that person is going to leave you for the next best thing as soon as they can. And you will always be on the rat race of chasing someone who will tell you they really love you. That person is Christ. He can love you fully. He can satisfy your soul. In Christ, you have someone who knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He knows everything about you, who knows every wrongdoing you've ever done. And at the cross, he looked at you in all of your brokenness, and he says, I see you in your sinfulness, but I love you, and I'll give my life for you. Because unless I do this, I can't be with you. You'll be cut off from me but he loved you and proved it by giving his life for you. You need Christ to fill that hole in your life. If you're pursuing hypersexuality in this city, I want you to know it will not satisfy you. And my guess is you're already experiencing the brokenness from it in more ways than one. Christ can satisfy. Only Christ can satisfy. His love is not cheap. It does not leave you for the next best thing. It's a covenant. Three idols. Now, I want to talk about what we can do. Christians are oftentimes known about what they're against. In fact, this is one of the arguments that's given against Christianity is, here's what you're against. And we, you know, the picture is of us pointing our finger at everybody else. Well, I think Juan demonstrated earlier today that Christians need to be very good at first pointing the finger inwards. All of us have fallen short in many ways. But what can we do? How do we respond in a positive way? The history of the world and the history of Christianity is a very beautiful thing because I think it demonstrates that Jesus is alive and well and that his church is making an impact in this world. Back in the days of, the, of Christ, during the Roman Empire, there was a practice known as infant exposure. Infant exposure was an ancient form of abortion. Only it happened after a child was born. If you got pregnant in those days and you had a child that you didn't want for any reason, either you didn't want to have a child Maybe it was a gender you didn't want, or maybe it had some kind of disability and you didn't want the child. Infant exposure meant that you could leave the child on the street and expose it to the elements, okay? This was a common practice in the Roman Empire. So it would, and, and essentially the child would die. So you just cast your child into a trash heap on the side. The child lays there for a few days. It cries itself to death. And then you can go on with your life as if nothing ever happened. That was called infant exposure. If you go back to the Greeks and the Romans and you look at their culture and the philosophers and the people that wrote about ethics in those days, they were a little torn over this practice. And they were torn over it because it was normal. It was a normally culturally accepted thing. The same way that abortion is culturally accepted today. Most people can't imagine a world where abortion doesn't exist. It just, it's the way we do things. It's how society works. That's how infant exposure was. 
Some people thought it was a little wrong. Some people thought it was yucky. But on the whole, it was somewhat accepted. You know how it came to a screeching halt? Well, it was because Jesus formed this thing called the church right in the midst of the Roman Empire. And the church was filled by the love of God, knowing that Jesus had done an amazing work in their life and were commanded to go out and love the least of these. And seeing the injustice of a baby crying itself to death, they couldn't live with it. And so Christians around the Roman Empire started picking up the children and bringing them into their homes and adopting them by the thousands until there were none left. Infant exposure came to a screeching halt. Eventually, eventually, the Roman politicians of the day saw that Christians were so changing the culture by their sacrificial love, not only of loving their own kids, but of loving their kids that they were discarding, that eventually the Roman Empire caught on and made it illegal to practice infant exposure. The the politics caught up to what the church was already doing. The church led the way, culture followed. That's how infant exposure came to an end. Now, adoption has always been a massive part of the Christian witness to the world. And I believe it will be a massive part of the Christian witness to the world in the future as well. We can't, only just, we can't just believe that Jesus is risen from the grave. If we believe it, then we've got to step into brokenness around us and be salt and light. Not just with our mouth and with wise words, but with our love with our homes, with our families, with our cars, with our bedrooms, with our meals and our dinner times. There's a statistic I read sometime back that said if one family in every three churches, if one family in every three churches in America would adopt a child, there would be no more children needing adoption in this country overnight. Now this church breaks the mold. At Park, we've gotten very serious about this, and if you're newer with us, I want to invite you into this and celebrate some of the work this church has been doing. A number of years ago, many of you know my wife and I, we have three daughters. Um, One is biological, two are adopted uh, through Chicago's foster care system, And, and that journey itself has been this remarkable journey of experiencing the gospel and being stretched in our faith in ways that we never dreamed we would be stretched in. Right? We could talk about adoption all day long. But when we adopted our daughters, we began to uh, notice that the Spirit of God was moving in such a way that we were not the only ones. There were a handful of other folks around the church that were also considering adoption. We're considering foster care. We're considering being safe families, which is short-term foster placement. And as we had gone through the journey, my wife and I, now we adopted through the foster care system, which is actually free. There is no cost for adoption. The state pays for your adoption through the foster care system because it actually, it, 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 it ends up saving the, the government far more money to have Christian families adopt their children than to have the children go through the system for many, many years. It saves the money, so they pay for your adoption. But if you don't go through the foster system, if you just directly adopt, it can cost up to $60,000 for an adoption. Now, most people, when I say that number, their eyes go wide. That's how much it costs, and we can tell you why, because there's all kinds of people involved. There's lawyers involved, there's judges involved, there's all kinds of groups involved, you've got people coming into your home, there's paperwork that needs to be filed, air flights, there's medical bills, there's many things that add up to a total of between 50 and 60, if not more, thousand dollars. And we said as a church, what if we put money aside and remove the financial barrier for Christians who want to adopt? What if we said, as a church, we're going to be really serious about this. We're going to put money aside and say, if there is a willing Christian adoptive family in this church, 
we're gonna come alongside them and make sure it gets done and the finances are not away. And so we, we created the Park Adoption Fund. We put over $100,000 aside. Other churches from across the park network then pitched in a little bit more. I think today, I think there's been probably over $160,000 put in and we've given tens of thousands of dollars out to many families to adopt children across the country. Can we just celebrate that work for a moment? Now, I want you to know something. When you give a dollar to this church, you are giving a dollar towards that work. That's not the only place our money goes, but that's what we're busy with. I want you to know that. One of the visions we had originally when we started the fund was, wouldn't it be cool if one day there were all these children running through the halls, and many of them adopted, but then playing with those who were biological, and just, it was, there were just tons of them everywhere. And for everyone who ever gave a dollar to this church to be able to say, in some way, I was a part of that. I saw that happen. I contributed to making it happen. If you are in this room today and you are considering adoption, I want to uh, just let you know, adoption has always been a central thread of the Christian gospel. Why? Because the Christian narrative is that we have been adopted in the family of God. That's what the gospels tell us. No person is born a child of God despite what the posters tell you when you walk down the street. Not everyone is a child of God. In fact, when you're born, you're born underneath the wrath of God. You're separated from God. And Colossians tells us that our father was the devil. Isn't that interesting? But the moment you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus went underneath the wrath of God for you because he loves you. And if you put your faith in Christ, then all of your sins are forgiven. And not only are you forgiven, but then you're adopted into God's family. And he treats you as if you were a biological son. He treats you as if you were Christ himself. He loves you. He cares for you. He'll never let you go. He adopts you into it. And adoption is expensive. (laughs) You know how much it costs for God to adopt you? The death of his son, Jesus Christ. That was how much it cost. The blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth had to be shed upon that cross in order for you to be adopted and engrafted into this family that would never forsake you. But that's your story, Christian. I love telling my adopted daughters that I've been adopted too. I've been adopted into God's family. Every single member of our family has been adopted into God's family because we believed in Jesus. Jesus purchased our sonship on the cross. So when we adopt or we step into orphan care, we are quite literally saying, look at the gospel on display. That's what we're saying. Now this church, there are many children in this church who are either have come through the foster care system, have been adopted. Many families are engaged in this in some way. And church, I want to mobilize you. This is not the only way to engage this topic. Not everybody should adopt. My wife and I will tell you that. that is, not everyone needs to adopt. Many do. Not everybody needs to be a foster parent. Many do. I think I read a statistic somewhere that said uh, many Christian couples will um, kind of like idealize that one day they will adopt. They talk about it. And only 5% that ever talk about it will actually follow through on those words. And the reason is, I know the reason. The reason is because it's a huge step. It changes your life. You bring kids into your home. You're going to have grandkids. You're going to... It's forever. I see some of you smiling in the back rows. I know you got foster kids, and I know I see you smiling back there, and you're thinking of your life. Yeah, that's what it is. That's the Christian life. We're willing to change everything to love on anybody because Christ pursued us. We pursue others. Now, what do we do with this church? First, let's look at this whole conversation. Abortion is a real issue. 
It's happening. It's the great injustice happening under our nose, and it's not only normalized, it's celebrated. And Christians cannot, cannot join forces with the spirit of Molech, with the spirit of demons. In the Old Testament, it was a spirit of Molech that caused people to sacrifice their children on altars. We cannot join forces with idols like that. We have to boldly stand against it. And it is first and foremost a worship issue. I am not asking you, if you're not a Christian, to change your opinion on morality. That's impossible. You can't do it. You need to meet Jesus. Jesus will change everything about you. I never dreamed that I'd be a pastor, but he got a hold of my life. He changed me from the inside out, and I can't change it. I couldn't change if I tried. He changed me, and he will change you too. He is good, and he is pursuing you even right now. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus today, before you leave this room. I don't want you to remember about abortion if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet. I want you to know Jesus is so good. He will change your life. And if this is sounding at all true, do not resist the spirit that's moving in you right now. Believe in Christ. Secondly, I want you to follow up with Juan today. If you're looking for a way to get uh, plugged in and take a next step, visit the Love Life table over here. Some of you, it might be as simple as giving towards Love Life Ministries. Maybe this isn't something you have much bandwidth for, but you can finance. You can give towards it. Give. Explode this ministry. Some of you want to just take a class, learn more. He's got classes coming up. Learn about it. Go over there. Take a next step. Everyone can do a next step. And number three, lastly, be in people's lives. Be in people's lives. We have to be in people's lives because people live very broken lives. And and I'm just imagining the young couple who is pregnant and they didn't expect it. And they're, they're covered in fear of what this is going to mean for their life. And they need a family to come alongside them and say, don't do this. Don't do this. You're, you're taking a life and women who go through abortion suffer from years of all kinds of grief and depression and brokenness that is not reported in the news. This is not talked about, but that's the reality. And many of the women who are part of our church who have had abortions will tell you that's their story. Jesus can deliver you from it, but we need to be in people's lives. I haven't shared this. Actually, forgive me, Sarah. I didn't tell you I was gonna share this. A year and a half ago, my wife and I had a miscarriage. And... Uh, Every, about every time we go down to Sarah's parents' place, uh, after the miscarriage, we buried the, the little embryo behind the barn, uh, behind my father-in-law's house. And uh, man, oh man, that was a night. And every year, we go back there, we just pray over the, pray over the spot. Sarah thinks it was a girl, I think it was a boy. I got three girls and a boy. <laughs> There's something about humanity that loves by nature the child in the womb, don't we? Yes. We love babies. Moms and dads love to cherish that baby. And, uh, and we do that by nature. We know what it is. We cannot at the same time grieve a miscarriage and stand casually by while children are being slaughtered at the mill. Those two things can't coexist. It's, it would be hypocritical. It would be silly. It would be foolish. The life of a child in the womb is worthy of being protected. And Christian, you're up. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you and we worship you. 
And uh, God, we just pray that you would mobilize this church to be faithful with the work you've called us to. We want to worship Christ first and foremost. Anywhere where the Spirit is moving right now, God, would you please have your way with us. Change us. We don't want to be so stubborn that we can't be led by you. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.